If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. The outer gods choose their vessels. Though in these lands between they are shrouded in mystery, there are but a few that can be named. The Mother of Truth, the Fire Giant's God, the Scarlet Rot, the Frenzied Flame, the Dragon's God, and the Greater Will. In the times before, the Dragon Lord Placidisax served as the ruler of the lands between, the servant of the unnamed Dragon's God. It was a primordial power that brought life to this land, the Crucible. But the Dragon Lord's God was fled. Placidisax no longer sat as a lord, and the great beast began to long await its god's return, hidden away within the crumbling Farum Azula. But the dragons of the lands between still sat in observance of the Crucible's power, and held authority in the lands between, as did the mighty fire giants of the north, who served a different god and tended to its great flames. In the vacuum of centralized leadership over the lands between, the outer god called the Greater Will began to exert control. It sent to the lands between a meteor, holding within it a creature called the Elden Beast. The creature was its vassal, holding within it the power and order of the Greater Will. Then it was decided, through birth and deigning, ones called Empyreans would be chosen to rule. To be an Empyrean would be to be honored, worshipped, revered in the lands between. To be an Empyrean would mean power, the potential to ascend to godhood. Each Empyrean would carry gifts and destiny from the greater will. Enigmatic beings called the Two Fingers would act as medians between the Empyreans and the greater will each one given their own two fingers at birth or when chosen as an Empyrean. They would also be given their own shadow, one who would act as companions, servants, and protectors, enacting the will of the Empyrean. In this land of giants, dragons, and humanoids, one was chosen from a different place. The greater will chose her to be an Empyrean, to ascend as a god, to become queen of the lands between. Merica, she was called and she was of an otherworldly people called the Newman. As was ordained, Merica was granted a two-finger that would relay the desires of the Greater Will, as well as a shadow who was called Malekith. Malekith would be as a half-brother to the new Empyrean, eternally and unquestionably loyal to her. Merica then took a consort and husband who was called Godfrey, her first Elden Lord. Godfrey was a great human warrior that Merica elevated as a demigod. In his life before serving as her Elden Lord, Godfrey was called Horalu, Chieftain of the Badlands. Upon abandoning that name and title and taking up the mantle as the Elden Lord, Godfrey took a companion of his own, a beast called Serosh, who would calm his lust for battle. The Greater Will bestowed one more thing upon Merica. As the vessel of the Greater Will, Merica would house within herself the power of the Elden Beast, cast into a powerful artifact called the Elden Ring. Merica's ascendance into godhood was complete. She would found the Golden Order, a religion that observed the desires of the Greater Will. At the heart of the lands between, the Erdtree blossomed. It would serve as a representation of the Elden Ring's power. It blossomed over the once primordial energy of the Crucible, usurping its place in the world. Around it, Merica would build her capital city, but first there were other matters to see to, with the power of the Elden Ring at her call, with Malekith to enact her will, and with her husband Godfrey at her side, Merica waged a war against the fire giants of the north. It was bitter and hard fought. All the great fire giants of the north were wiped out save one, 
America could not extinguish the eternal flame of their unnamed god that burned within a great cauldron in their homeland, so she cursed the final fire giant to stand guard over it forever. That flame was the only thing that could burn the air tree. As its warden, the last of the fire giants would keep away all who could use that flame to threaten the air tree. Merica and Godfrey founded the capital city of Lindell at the foot of the air tree. Unbeknownst to Godfrey, Merica could exist in two forms, her female form and a male form called Radigan. Radigan had wild, bright red hair and carried on his own existence in the lands between. This duality of Merica was a fiercely guarded secret. Radigan led forces of the Golden Order to the west to conquer Liurnia of the Lakes where the Academy of Raya Licaria rested. But Radigan met resistance there that quite stumped him. He could not defeat the forces of Liurnia. The queen of the Academy repelled his armies not once, but twice. At the end of his second attempted at conquest, Radigan saw this mighty queen who was called Renala. She'd risen to power and established her family as royalty through talent as a glintstone sorcerer and sheer grit. She was a powerful woman affiliated with the magics of the moon, and Radigan fell in love with her. Rather than wage war against her again, Radigan asked Renala to marry him. She accepted, and the marriage united the two once warring lands together. This aided in the spread of the Golden Order's influence and solidified it as the ruling theology of the lands between. But Merica's blind faith in the Golden Order wavered. She began to search the depths of the Greater Will and the commands of the Two Fingers. And though it's not known what specifically she found during her search, it is known that she began to question the Greater Will and her role as a vessel for the Elden Ring. Death is what troubled her. Merica wished to see the lands between freed from destined death. So she took the Rune of Death out of the Elden Ring, giving herself and all future demigods of this land immortality. She gave the road to her shadow Malekith to guard in secret. The Rune of Death could deliver pure death to the demigods, both body and spirit. But by doing this, Merica and the demigods that ruled the lands between would no longer need to fear death, so long as that rune stayed hidden away with Malekith. Marka and Godfrey went on to have children. Their firstborn was Godwin, followed by the twins Moog and Morgoth. While Godwin was beloved and called the Golden, Moog and Morgoth were born as cursed omens. Their bodies were horned, distorted, unbecoming of the Golden Order and this new era of the Air Tree. So, Marika had Moog and Morgoth kept in the sewers beneath the city, discarded and raised in secret beneath Lendel. Despite the twins being accursed omens, all the children of Marka and Godfrey were demigods. Their firstborn Godwin became a mighty warrior, much like his father. Renala and Radigan also had children of their own, Rikard, Radon, and Ronnie. While they were children born of two powerful beings, they were not demigods. Rikard seemed a traveler, a bit of a scholar. He spent time in the volcanic region of Mount Gelmir learning the magics of locals and their beliefs around a mythic snake creature within the mountain. His brother Radon became a mighty and great military mind and leader, large in size. So large, in fact, that eventually he could no longer ride his beloved horse. So Radon went to a master of gravitational magic and undertook the artful study so that he could once again ride his horse. However, this study of gravitational magic would come in handy later in life as well. For Radon used his dominance over gravitational magic to challenge the very stars. He conquered the night sky, he stopped the stars from moving across it, and he earned the title Star Scourge. 
But as for the third child, Ronnie, she was much more like her mother, Ranala, than her brothers. She had strong ties to lunar magics and a streak in her that defied the station she was born into, for you see, Ronnie was born in Empyrean, like Merica, which meant that destiny called to her and that one day she could succeed Merica as the ruler of the lands between. Ronnie had her own two fingers to act as the intermediary between this Empyrean and the Greater Will. She was given a shadow that would be raised with her, that would protect her and serve her, that would be loyal to her at all costs. Their name was Blythe, the Half-Wolf, and he was as a brother to Ronnie. She was also given a counselor of war named Eiji, who would help guide her in her life's path. Renala and Ronnie had a fondness for one another, a bond the other children of the demigods and their parents seemed to lack. But her magical education came from a mysterious snow witch that Ronnie met in the wilds, who taught her spells of cold and ice and taught her to fear the dark moon. Her mother was a master of the full moon, giving the two different sides of the same coin with their powers. Eventually, back in the capital city of Lendel, where Merica ruled, the dragons attacked. A great beast called Granax brought down the walls of the city, the only time in history in which that would ever happen. It was a fearsome war between the Golden Order and the primordial dragons that once served Dragon Lord Placidasax. Son of Marika and Godfrey, the one called Godwin the Golden, fought against a mighty dragon called Fortisax. The two raged battle against one another, but in the end, it was Godwin that won. But he did not kill the dragon Fortisax. Rather, the two became friends and had great respect for one another. Ultimately, the dragons lost their war against Marika and her Golden Order. They returned to Ferumazula, crumbling away over the ocean. It became lost to time, kept hidden away within the maelstrom of a storm. Some dragons would still hunt over or make their home within the lands between, but for the most parts, the dragons left the landmass, and passage to their domain was cut off completely. The influence of the Golden Order and the Greater Will eventually completely enveloped the lands between. The passage of time brought the exodus of war. The husband of Marika, Godfrey, fought his final foe, but rest did not come to the mighty warrior. He was once Horalu of the Badlands, a masterful fighter whose greatest calling was to seek out powerful enemies. But with the conclusion of the Golden Order's crusade and the cementing of its influence and power, that no longer existed. So Godfrey began to lose his meaning. He lost grace in the eyes of the Greater Will. Perhaps as a mercy to him, or perhaps because she was done with him, Merica cast her husband Godfrey and his followers from the lands between. She bid him to seek out foes beyond the lands, to never cease in their fighting, and if he should be worthy of returning to grace one day, then he would return to these lands. Godfrey and his warriors departed from the lands between, becoming the first of the Tarnished. The Tarnished were those who were no longer blessed by the Air Tree's power. They were exiles who did not possess grace. Though this did not mean they were exiled in disgrace, no, they just had no place under the Air Tree. Godfrey once again took the name Horalu, and with his followers, they hunted the Badlands, searching out powerful prey and foes. His life as the Elden Lord and husband to Merica left in the past. Merica called her other half home, the male aspect Radigan, back to the capital city. He abandoned his wife Renala, the lands of Liurnia, the academy, his children, and heeded his other half's command to return. Radigan gave to Renala a great rune before he left, part of the Elden Ring itself. 
How he came to possess it, I could not say, but Renala held it within an amber egg and embraced complete devastation by Radigan's departure. Her heart was broken, and she was not herself after this betrayal. The attendants of the Academy lost faith in Queen Renala's ability to rule and questioned her abilities as a champion of Liurnia and had her chased down. She locked herself away at the top of the Academy in the Great Library, clutching her egg in the Great Room that Radigan had left her. Radigan and Merica then married. One spirit in two forms, a rather grisly prospect to ponder. Radigan would be the new consort and husband of Merica, taking the place of Godfrey. After all, the greatest warrior of the lands between had departed for other places who could possibly replace Godfrey but Merica himself. Merica raised Radigan's children with Renala to demigod status, Rikard, Radon, and Rani. She embraced them as her stepchildren. Then Merica and Radigan had two more children, twins once again. Melenia, a girl, and Mikola, a boy. Both born Empyreans, both born sickly, both born cursed. Melania bore within her the scarlet rot. It would ravage her body as she grew, an unending torment and the sickness upon her. Mikola would always be trapped within the body of a child, never allowed to grow into an adult. But there was more to Mikola than what met the eye. He also had the ability to make all around him love him and cherish him. Imagine having the mind of an adult trapped in the husk of a child, surrounded by towering demigods. This ability was his lifeline. It's what kept the little Empyrean safe, what made him so terrifying to those who knew the truth of him. He could control and manipulate anyone to do anything through the power of love. But his twin sister Melenia truly cared for her twin brother. The two shared in their hard lives, helped and they cared for one another. When Melenia was a young woman, she met a blind swordsman who'd fought the outer god of rot. Radigan, her father, had never taken to training Melenia. She was a seeming outcast amongst her family, save Mikola. But this master swordsman trained Melenia, and she became the greatest fighter in all the lands between. She was undefeated, unbeatable. And she used her power to protect and serve her twin brother, as though Melenia herself, also an Empyrean, would act as her brother's shadow. Melenia believed that Mikola was the one meant to one day sit on the throne, not her. And Mikola also sought to take care of his sister. He delved through the knowledge of the Golden Order, and he questioned the greater will to find a cure for Melenia's scarlet rot. She was losing limbs. She was in eternal pain. She suffered greatly, yet she still served her tiny brother. When Mikola discovered that the Golden Order could not help his sister, he abandoned it completely. He began creating an unalloyed golden needle that could stave off the influences of the Outer Gods in hopes that it would someday free Melenia from the effects of the rot. Radigan and Mikola studied and shared in incantation knowledge. Mikola even gifted his father some of his own incantations, his own creations. Eventually, Melenia and Mikola traveled to the far frigid north together, to the once lands of the giants. Far away from the capital city and the air tree, Mikola planted a tree sapling of his own, and he fed it his own blood. He hoped to create his own air tree of sorts, a home free from the Golden Order, a new place to start again. It grew into the Halic tree, and it housed its own military force within a city called Elphael. To cure his sister's rot, Mikola believed he needed to undo his own curse, become stronger. So, he placed himself into the roots of the Halic tree. One day, it would become as mighty and powerful as the air tree, 
free from the influence of the Greater Will and the Golden Order, and he would emerge free from his childlike curse. Then, his sister could be cured. Some time after Mikola entered his slumber at the roots of the Halig tree, all hell broke loose. Ronnie, the daughter of Renala and Radigan, was displeased with her fate being dictated to her. She longed to be free of her Empyrean body, wanted nothing to do with this outer god that she did not love. She wanted her destiny to be her own. She saw what Radigan had done to her once indomitable mother, what Merica had done to her. She didn't long for the conquests of her lumbering brother Radon. She was more like her brother Rikard in that regard. A delver into forbidden unknowns. Ronnie felt a disdain for this golden era and longed for a great change to upset the balance and usher in a new age. So, Ronnie stole the Rune of Death from Merica's shadow Malaketh. How she did it, I could not say. She gained the cooperation of Black Knife assassins, deadly female killers that shared a Newman heritage with Merica herself. How she did this, again, I could not say. For the Black Knife assassins were thought loyal to their eternal queen. The coercion that brought them into action is a matter of speculation, but what happened that night is well known to the lands between. First, I shall tell you what, and then perhaps the why. It became known as the Night of the Black Knives. The Lunar Princess Rani, daughter of Queen Renala and Radigan, imbued the weapons of the assassins with fragments of the Rune of Death. To them, she gave death of spirit, but not of body. No, she needed that for something else. With these treacherous weapons in hand, the Black Knife assassins crept into the capital city of Lendel under the cover of night, and Rani made her way to the Divine Tower of Liurnia in her homeland to the west, the path of which was made secret and impassable to those unworthy of ascending the tower. The assassins in the city sought the son of Marika and Godfrey, their firstborn, Godwin the Golden. They caught him. They subdued him and plunged their death blades into his body. At the same time, the Lunar Princess Rani, atop the Divine Tower, plunged her own part of the Rune of Death into her own body. To Godwin the Golden went death of spirit. To Rani went death of body. But why, Rani? Why do this? Why something so extreme? Why kill the very spirit of Godwin the Golden? Well, think whatever fantasy one may of the Lunar Princess. In truth, she sought the dark path of the moon. She took the hard road and merciless path of upsetting the world. Rani longed to be free of her destiny as an Empyrean, and she would kill everyone to do it. She did not wish to follow the command of the Greater Will. She'd found her own way, perhaps her own outer god within the Dark Moon. She longed for a new age, a different age, free from the Greater Will, and she'd destroy everything to see it done. For herself, for her mother, for a future far from this present. And what happened after the Night of the Black Knives was violent. Merica shattered the Elden Ring, and at the same time, Radigan tried to restore it. But he failed. She broke it into fragments, broke it into greater rune pieces, and scattered it to the corners of the land. Damn it all, let the world sort it out. Merica remained the vessel for the whole of the Elden Ring, the framework for its entirety within her body. The Greater Will would not let her go, would not forgive the sin, would not release the lands between to other forces. Merica and Radigan, now one in body, were both imprisoned within the air tree, broken, fragmented, but still living. A prisoner to the Greater Will, kept untouchable by all within the Great Tree's center. 
the Lunar Princess Rani sent her spirit into the body of a doll made in the likeness of her once teacher that opened her eyes to the power of the Dark Moon. Her Empyrean body was dead, she was free from her destiny to pursue her own wants and hearken a new age. Surely she knew of the greedy ambitions of her sibling demigods, for what happened next played precisely into her design. The children of Marika, of Godfrey, of Renala, of Radigan, and all their offspring, the many lines of demigods, powerful lords that plagued the lands, the great and small in between, the greedy and boisterous, they all began to war over the great runes of the Elden Ring. They fought over power, over who would be next to usurp leadership of the lands between, over who would be the next king or queen. The demigod children of Marika and Radigan all had pieces of the Elden Ring, they each came to possess their own greater runes, but none had all the pieces needed to remake the Elden Ring whole. This world erupted into chaos, into war, into mass slaughter of which the weak were made victim of, a tale all too familiar. Those that loved Godwin the Golden and longed for his resurrection took his still-living corpse into the roots of the air tree and embedded him into it with the hope that the ancient power within the tree's roots could restore Godwin. But his spirit was dead, there was no coming back from it. Godwin's body instead seeped a corruption into the air tree and death root began to appear around the continent, giving birth to a terrible undead life to those exposed to it. Godwin became known as the Prince of Death, and those that fell victim to his body's corruption were called those who live in death, abominations against the Golden Order. Morgoth, one of the omen twins of Marika and Godfrey, who'd spent a lifetime in squalor beneath the capital, came to the surface and took the mantle of king over the Altus Plateau. But King Morgoth could not break into the center of the tree, where his mother and the husk of the Elden Ring was imprisoned. Morgoth seemed to desire to keep things in order, to maintain the Golden Order, to earn his place in the world. He kept away those that would dare approach the Air Tree, and kept watch over the lands between for any that could threaten the Greater Will and the Golden Order. His siblings and half-siblings he viewed as traitors, and so he warred. Within Mount Gelmer at the Volcano Manor, the son of Queen Renala, the one called Rikard, sought a way to kill and consume the demigods that he called his foes. He collected an army all his own, fanatical loyalists who would do anything for him. Rikard held Mount Gelmer, some of the most bloody battles the land betweens had ever seen, but he held it. Badness eventually took Rikard, and he found that snake beast within the mountain. He allowed himself to be consumed by it and he overtook the creature. Rikard became an all-consuming beast, devouring even his own loyal followers to make them all part of one mind. In shame, the shadow of Merica, the great being called Maliketh, hid himself away, cursed by Merica to eternally hunger for death root. He would never again know any peace. He would suffer eternally for losing the rune of death, yet he would remain loyal to his Empyrean queen, a sad fate the once unstoppable shadow. And the dragon Fortisax was broken over the loss of Godwin the Golden. They were friends, once combatants during Merica's war with the dragons. In an attempt to save his friend, Fortisax tried to undo the death of Godwin, but he too failed in bringing him back. Fortisax was corrupted by the blight of Godwin's body that was seeping into the air tree, turning him into a lich dragon. He passed into legend, trapped within the roots of the air tree. The other Omen twin, son of Merica and Godfrey, the one called Moog, also joined the war. 
but in a far more devious and underhanded way. While his twin brother Morgoth ruled the capital city, Moog went north in secret. He had become unspeakably powerful in his time underground. He served the Mother of Truth, or some call them the Formless Mother. The Mother gave him domain over blood magics that burned like hot fire against his foes. Free from the underground of the capital city, Moog traveled to the Halig Tree of Mikola and Melenia, the sickly twin Empyreans in the frigid north. Somehow, Moog knew that the childlike Mikola was slumbering within the roots of the Halig Tree. He knew Mikola to be the next most probable ordained ruler of the lands between. Moog waited until the twin sister Melenia was not within the city. He cut the childlike Empyrean from the roots of the Halig Tree and he stole him away. He had plans for the mighty Empyrean, which will later be revealed. Melenia, mighty Melenia, had been at war on behalf of her brother, on behalf of their now home Elfeo at the Halig Tree. She'd won countless battles, she was undefeated. She didn't know that her brother had been stolen by Moog. As the war between demigods and usurpers played out, only two forces remained intact and in play. Those of Melenia, the Blade of Megala, and those of General Radon, the Star Scourge. Though Melenia was undefeated, the greatest fighter in all the lands, her half-brother, General Radon, was the mightiest of them. He was huge in size and stronger than anything else in the lands between. The two armies came to conflict in the wilds of Radon's home territory of Kaled. Their armies tore each other apart until only Melenia and Radon themselves were left standing, and oh the glorious battle they had. Godfrey could only dream of such a thing. The two were unbeatable, yet still they fought through the Kaled Wilds. And it would have seemed that General Radon had the upper hand, that maybe he could have taken victory over Melenia, that Radon, son of Queen Renala, would be the next ruler of the lands between, but Melenia would not concede. Instead, Melenia embraced the rot within herself. Melenia bloomed. The scarlet rot overtook the once fertile lands of Kaled and all within. Radon was infected. He became a wild beast. A shadow of himself, his mind and his body rotted. He roamed the lands near his home, consuming the bodies of his once companions in war. Melenia herself became comatose. She was taken by one of her loyal followers back to the Halig tree, far, far to the north. She was laid to sleep beside the roots where Mikola once slumbered, unaware that her twin was gone. She rested and awaited his awakening, but the rot that was coursing through her body seeped into the Halig tree. The rot would fester within Elphale and the tree corrupting it, making it sickly, dooming the once beautiful dream the two twins once shared in. Rygerd remained within Mount Galmer, growing ever more powerful as a demigod-consuming snake. Morgoth remained within the capital city of Landel, reigning over rubble, keeping away any who would try to enter the Erd tree. Queen Renala began experimenting with her great rune to try creating a process of rebirth so that she might bring back her beloved daughter, Rani. Not knowing that she lived now within the body of a doll within their home manor nearby. Moog took Mikola underground to his Mogwin palace beneath the land of Kaled. He put the child god into a cocoon and fed him his own blood, hoping that one day Mikola would emerge a god under his own control so that he might serve as Mikola's consort and serve at his side as a lord all his own. Horalu, also known as Godfrey, the former husband of Merica, eventually came to hear a call to return to the lands between, 
to take back his title as Elden Lord. The Lunar Princess Rani herself sat contently, watching the events of the world play out. She kept the truth of her intentions from her war counselor Eiji and her shadow Blythe. She still had steps that she'd need carried out for her plan to be complete. She would practice patience through the era to come, the many, many years it would take for the circumstances to be just right. The world would continue on, in a sense. Children would still be born, lives of the common folk carried out, battles, wars, suffering still happened. The lands between were hollow and sick, but the cycle of life was perpetual. Tarnished from other lands were called to this place, called by long-lost grace, to serve a purpose unknown, to find a meaning here all their own. Some serving strange and unknown outer gods, others wished to see the Golden Order restored. All Tarnished would find respite in the Round Table Hold, a place taken out of time and space that originated within the capital city as a once robust building. Here, the Tarnished would find respite from their journeys with rules in place to prevent violence from happening. Untold years passed, and one was called to the lands between. Another Tarnished, one of countless. Grace beckoned them there, and they awoke with not a memory, no history, another to rise to perhaps stand before the Elden Ring to become the Elden Lord. But would they pursue that path when truths come revealed to them? They awoke within the Chapel of Anticipation on a small landmass over an abyss, once part of the mainland, but war and thundering demigods split parts of the land away. Remnants of America's empire still litter the land, and creations of war do as well. The first opposition this Tarnished will face is a grafted scion, a warning of things to come. This feels familiar to this particular Tarnished, though. They're hardened enough from a prior life that they can take down this amalgamation and continue on their way in peace. But circumstances bid that death must take place. So the Tarnished just plunged on the depths of a cliff face at the conclusion of this particular area. But for the Tarnished, death is not the end, at least not for this Tarnished. An unknown force will restore them time and time again. Others in the lands between may share in that fate of continual resurrection, but most will not. The laws of death are quite broken here. Destined death is not always the case for those called by grace, and grace has certainly called to and blessed this tarnished. Whilst life returns to them, a beautiful beast and a seeming young woman find them. This is Melina, not to be confused with Melenia, no, Melina and the spirit steed Torrent. Melina searches for something, yet she does not know what. She does not name her mother, yet Melina was born within the Aird Tree long ago. Her body burned, left as a spirit, and sent into the world to find her purpose. She will watch the Tarnished for some time to see if perhaps they have the strength to help her. Rising finally from their not-so-final death, the Tarnished is someplace new, removed from where they originally awoke in the Chapel of Anticipation. There are some lessons to be learned here in this newborn's cave, the basics of survival that will carry them in varying dynamics time and time again, essentials that should not be omitted. Rising through the depths and exiting this tomb-like cradle reveals the first playground for this tarnished, the region of Limgrave. They know nothing of this land, nor of themselves. It's beautiful, but clearly in decline and neglected. Still, there is life here, but the landscape presents far more questions than it could possibly have answered. A land of gold and life that's suffering from some great calamity left to crumble. The first person that the Tarnished meets is an off-putting man named Vare, who immediately asks them if they're here to seek the Elden Ring. It's hard to tell if he's there to be helpful or to taunt, 
but Vari informs them that because they have no maiden, that they are destined to die in obscurity. They have no guidance, no runes to strengthen them, they have no way to reach the place called Round Table Hold, but perhaps Grace can guide them on. Vari tells the newly awakened Tarnished to look to the castle beyond the cliff. It's home to a demigod, whatever that is, someone named Godric the Grafted. Castle Stormvale is his home. If the people from these lands all talk like this guy, it's going to be exceedingly difficult to trust any of them. Perils and joy cover this land. It's hard to take a step without a challenge or a thing of beauty taking the eye. Vare said to approach Castle Stormvale, but there's just too many wondrous things to observe here. In the decrepit church of Ella nearby, a merchant named Kale sits beside a fire and greets the tarnished, a proper welcome. Kale is of a nomadic people scorned by grace and the Golden Order. His people once traveled the lands between in a massive caravan, but when Merica deemed them to be heretical, they were rounded up and his people were buried alive beneath the city. But why were they considered heretical? More important, why were they considered dangerous? Well, perhaps we'll discover this in our journeys. The soldiers of Stormvale litter the countryside, and all are hostile to any tarnished that enter their sights. The path up to the castle itself is a training exercise in dodging projectiles, but for the tarnished themselves, this doesn't really have any context. They were told to approach a castle on a cliff, and now hellfire is raining down. A tunnel to the castle opens up to a great crossing, where a battle took place. Melenia herself once marched upon the walls and threatened to take down this Godric the Grafted after he paid her an insult. He didn't win. She left him to fester in his shame, but, well, there's no Godric here. One does appear on the castle walls, and like Vare, accuses them of searching out the Elden Ring. He is an omen, and he challenges the Tarnished before the castle gates to combat, intent on seeing their journey stopped. He calls himself Margit the Thel, but that's not his true name, no. And he need not give it, either, for this Tarnished he views as nothing but an ambitious pest to be crushed. Margit is unlike anything the Tarnished has seen yet. He moves with a grace and speed that doesn't match his visage. In primordial times, before Merica came to rule, Margit and all children born as omens would have been seen as a blessing, marked beings that were favored by whatever god ruled at the time, but in Merica's era they were seen as cursed, disgusting things. She has two of her own twin boys born omens, and she cast them into the rock beneath the city and kept them secret and sequestered from the world. Margit the Fell is a worthy opponent, a harsh combatant to test the mettle of the Tarnished. He falls with dignity, but he does not die. Margit promises to remember them, and bids them to fear what is to come. It's a foreboding assurance that their business is not yet concluded. Beyond the main gate are many, many soldiers, making it a suicidal approach in the main grounds. But a door to the left of the gate is wide open, and part of the wall has been blown out by past conflict. A weird lanky fellow named Gostok is hiding here. He advises the Tarnished to take the side path through the castle instead of the main gate, but he will open the main gate for them if they choose it's their choice. Well, you know, I never said that common sense was my strong suit, and by that I mean the Tarnished never said that common sense was their strong suit, so main gate it is. And they're bringing friends with them. All journeys are made better with companions, and it's every bit as dangerous and ridiculous as one might think. There are massive ballistas bringing down volleys of arrows, dozens of ground soldiers and knights, enemies that slap hard and take patience to bring down. These grounds are well patrolled, well protected. There are tiers of barricades to get through up the path through the castle. 
All signs point to something really terrible taking place here. Beyond battle, beyond the waning of the era, something was done to the people here. The banquet halls are patrolled by a dreaded grafted scion. There are massive corpse piles strewn about the grounds. A strange magician of sorts is in the chapel here. His name is Rogier, and he is the least conspicuous, nicest, and most genuine person the Tarnish has met thus far. Even the merchant Kale felt a little harrowing to speak to, but Rogier is just so pleasant. He gives some insight as to all the corpses about the castle grounds. Those grafted scions, they're made up of the once residents of the castle, and any tarnish that have happened to have come through. Rogier himself is a tarnished, but he says that he's long since lost the guidance of grace. So, he will help this tarnished in any way that he can with the sale of magical arts and information, if it pleases them. As insightful and friendly as Rogier is, the Tarnished cannot stay to chat with the good fellow. They've still not found this Godric the Grafted, and now that they know what was meant by the Grafted, it's suddenly a lot more foreboding of a task. The Scions are bad enough, but what would a Grafted demigod be like? Well, they need not wander long. Do you remember Godwin the Golden? son of Merica and Godfrey, who was slain during the Night of the Black Knives. Well, this Godric is a far-removed descendant of Godwin the Golden. Once he called himself Godric the Golden in an attempt to be more akin to his powerful ancestor, but he's so far removed, so deluded in power that he might as well be Godric the Skidmark. Got him. But after the shattering of the Elden Ring, a great rune fell into Godric's possession, a piece of the Elden Ring itself. He tried to take control of the region of Limgrave, fancying himself a king for the future. While it's easy to look down upon Godric the Grafted as a fool and a narcissist worthy of mockery, he still does pose a threat to the Tarnished. He rocks the field and he rolls about haphazardly, and then when he feels the situation has become too much of a danger, he removes his own arm and his eyes fall upon a new strategy. He grafts onto himself the head of a dragon and imbues himself with its power. It's not his, but he can take it through his mastery of grafting. And the fight resumes with dangers anew. He is the last of the Golden Line, the final descendant of a bloodline that began with Godwin untold years ago. And this Tarnished will see that ended here. These cursed beings, these horrible people, Godric the Grafted dies behind the safety of his own castle walls. The imbecile, the cruel, he was unworthy of ruling these lands. He will never march upon the capital. He will quietly fade from the lands between, unsung and unmourned. Godric leaves behind a great rune, something this new tarnish is wholly unfamiliar with. Nothing has made sense thus far. Why did they kill this hideous thing? What is this great rune? Vari spoke of a place for the tarnished called Round Table Hold, but they've seen no clue as to where that could be. They've gotten all these strange smaller runes, but nothing to do with them. This little sight of grace, was that what Rogier was talking about? That he can't see them? And where did he go off to anyways? They returned to the place where the merchant Kale was, just to find some place safe and welcoming. There was a sight of grace there. Maybe a night of rest will help them. Time to recover, to contemplate. Their journey will be changed, defined. For when the tarnished sits to rest, the young woman Melina appears to them. She comes to offer them an accord.